Welcome to the Recovering from Religion podcast. We are a vibrant international community for those who have questions or doubts about their faith. I'm your host, Tim Rimel, along with my co-host, Bill Prickett. Welcome everyone to this special episode in Pride Month, and we're going to be talking about a lot of things, but uh, Bill, 50 years ago, right? Yes. Stonewall Riots. Stonewall Riots, uh, June the 28th, 1969, uh, the Stonewall Inn in New York City down in the village. They were raided by the police. At that time, many of the, or most of the, the gay bars uh, were owned by the mafia. They had an arrangement with the police department. The police would, would raid. They would pretty much know there was going to be a raid and they would pay the police officers to let them know in advance and they would raid and they would kind of, because it was illegal for gay and lesbian people to be uh, dancing together, to be touching. Uh, They weren't even supposed to be in the bars, but they would raid and it was a regular thing that happened. But on this night, for some reason, and the accounts are varied. I've read numerous books on it and there's varied stories based on who was there, who wasn't there in accounts, but a heated exchange began. A a group of of drag queens began to resist. Arguments ensued. Somebody threw a punch or one person said a high heel. And then the riots began and they went on for almost three days and they got bigger and bigger. And that uh, many consider to be the birth of the modern LGBTQ rights movement, and it was in the summer of '69, which was which was a a major summer anyway. I mean, we had the moon landing, uh, we had Woodstock, and then we had Stonewall. And some look back and say that there was a mood going on because of the death of Judy Garland. But you know, whatever happened, uh, it began a new movement. And then one year later was the first march to commemorate uh, the, the events at Stonewall. You were one of the drag queens, weren't you, Tim, at Stonewall? Yes, I was two. <laughs> and I, I led the parade. You led the parade. On uh, an elephant. And you know what's so weird is I look back on it now and think back on it. I mean, I was not a child, but I never heard any of this in my little incubated world in Birmingham, Alabama in the 60s. I mean, I was in high school, uh, just barely entering high school, but never remember hearing this until later in life after I began to come out. I had never heard of Stonewall or the riots or any of this. So it is a a major uh, historic event, but so many people who weren't directly affected by it didn't know about it. I didn't know about it either. I mean, it's the same thing with the APA, right? When they said that homosexuality wasn't a mental illness, we were in church. We were were sitting in the pews. We didn't care whether it was or not. No, because it didn't affect us. It didn't impact us and and had until I really began to deal with it. And even when when I was involved in ex-gay work, I didn't know the history of the, the, the gay movement. I just knew that, you know, we were we had this one side of the uh, what the Bible told us. And so we worked on that end of it, but I didn't know history until after I began to come out. Right. Well, I mean, it's the history of sin. So what do you need to know about that? <laughs> we don't need to know that. But I know the, the the first time I ever visited the Stonewall Inn was in 1998. 
I was had just started dating my now husband, and we went there for because being such a, uh, a history buff, when when I saw that that was the Stonewall Inn, I said, "Well, I want to go in and have a drink." And so we were in there, and I was telling my, uh, my at the time my boyfriend uh, all about the Stonewall and the riots and all that happened. And at that time, we had been dating about five or six months. And again, this was 1998. And all of a sudden, I just got kind of overwhelmed and caught up in it. And I just looked at him and I said, marry me. And so sitting in the Stonewall Inn, I proposed with no concept that we would ever be actually allowed to get married uh, because nobody could get married anywhere back then. And, And so I have a real connection to Stonewall. And so this is the 50th anniversary year. What's really interesting about this, a few years ago, I interviewed Troy Perrius for an article for Vice that never got published. And we were talking about what it was like because he did the first one in L.A. And he was talking about where they were and how it was a celebration. And I asked him things about the nudity and why was what was the purpose of, you know, you know, the things that happened and how it evolved to what it was. And it was a very different approach back then. They really came out with this is who we are and we're going to celebrate our sexuality or we're going to celebrate this gender nonconforming persona that we want to we want people to see. And growing up in the church, of course. We didn't do gender nonconforming. We had very strict gender roles. And oh, even yes. as a gay person, a closeted gay person in the church, and, and who didn't know what that, didn't know what homosexuality was back then, I knew how to act. I knew mm-hmm. how to present myself. And I knew that whatever feminine side of me was not allowed to be presented, nor did I want it to be presented because I wanted to be quote unquote normal. Yes. When I was four years old, my biological father left us, and my mother later remarried. I think I was about seven or eight, and uh, he later adopted myself, adopted me and my sister. But when he came into our lives, I think one of the first things he noticed was he was inheriting this little sissy boy. And so it became his mission in life to, to get that out of me, and he would do it through uh, I, I, he forced me to play sports and he would take me out in the backyard and we would play ball till I was exhausted. And, and I mean, I throw it again, throw it again. You're, you're throwing like a girl, you're running like a girl. And so it would just be so abusive to me. Right. And he would do that through forcing me to act a certain way. If he saw me in a stance or uh, anything he would call me out on it. He called me names. He was it was so it was so abusive in most of my life. So he was the first introduction to editing my mannerism and my behavior. And I learned since that time to I learned early watch my mannerisms, right. watch the way I stood, watch the, the the inflection in my voice. And plus, I was raised in the deep south, and and you know men were men, and this is how you're supposed to act, and. So I learned about gender conformity, uh, the certain roles and the way we act and the way we talk and the way we walk, all of these things. Yeah, my family came from the South, so it was the same thing, but it just happened in California. Funny story, though. <laughs> when, I was, when I was growing up, my sister was really into baseball, so she was, she was the one who was into sports. She actually became a sergeant major in the Army, one of 2% of women to reach that status. And... I thought growing up that my dad liked her better because she was the one involved in sports. Many, many years later, decades later, 
we had this conversation about her involvement in baseball. And he said, I hated it when she played baseball. She was terrible. <laughs> so I had a little vindication. There. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I actually got good. I, I made all-stars uh, in uh, high school baseball. Uh, before I mean, before I went into high school, it was just our local community uh, baseball team. But I hated every minute of it. I was good at it, right. but I hated it. And as soon as I reached the point where I didn't have to play anymore, I never wanted to play again. So when I hear people say, well, I don't want to go to church. My parents made me go to church. I'm the same way when somebody says, let's go to a baseball game. Uh-uh, I don't want to go to a baseball game. Yeah, same here, but it's too many hours wasted, in my opinion. <laughs> Let's talk about our guests, yes. our, our early guests. So we're so excited that we have a team on the on the on the podcast now. So we want to introduce to you uh, Sarah Austin, whom, if those of you who have been longtime longtime listeners, the last seven months, those of you who have listened to the show <laughs> for years and years, years and years, Sarah and Becca came on the show and they told their story, and then Sarah graciously took over the engineering of our podcast. So she goes back and she cleans up all the ums and ahs and, and cuts out some of Bill's long stories. And she makes me sound intelligent. And which is both, both of the, both of those are a full-time job. Oh, totally. Full-time job. Yeah. My husband just tells me not to talk. <laughs> so we're really excited to have Sarah on board as our engineer and Julian Apostata. He, he's going to correct me in a moment. Julian joined us as our producer a few weeks ago, so we're starting to get our guests lined up and it's organized and things aren't getting lost like they were. So we are very, very excited and very happy to uh, have Julian and Sarah on the team and uh, to welcome them to the show. So thanks both of you for being here. Hey, thank you. Yeah, thank you. So we're, we wanted to talk about this idea of gender nonconforming and both of you identify that way. Of course, Sarah, you're uh, trans. And Julian, you identify as, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're, you're straight, um, heterosexual, gender nonconforming. Uh, cis man, hetero-ish. <laughs> hetero-ish, okay. Hetero-ish. I love the fluidity of, of that concept. I do too. Right, but that, that was not a thing, Bill, when you and I were growing up. Oh, because, absolutely. As you said, anything that, that exemplified something other than the man you were supposed to be was quickly squashed. So my question to Sarah and Julian is, you're in the church. How did you present yourself? Was there this non-conforming aspect to you at the time? How did it feel? What was that like for you? Sarah, you want to go? Yeah, so I, I mean, my story is um, pretty vanilla, really. I didn't really address any of my gender identity stuff until long after I had stopped going to church. So there was never an intersection of those two things. I, you know, I can remember like the stories you guys were telling about growing up and and all of that talk about, oh, you know, being um, feminine and girly and uh, and how negative those were presented. Uh, that stuff stuck in my mind for a, a really, really long time. But uh, but no, it never really interacted with my my religious um, upbringing. Like I know now looking back. Looking on the information that's that is there, you know, actually reading the Bible, I, I know that there's a lot of that cultural expectation of gender norms is is reinforced biblically in religion, and I, it's one of those things that I don't remember when I was a kid, you know, a young uh, young person in the church. I don't remember hearing that stuff. I'm sure I probably did, and and 
you know, that's the indoctrination of it, right? That it's just, it was what it was and it didn't really make a mark on me. And I think some of it is very subtle as far as uh, how we're supposed to present ourselves. Oh, yeah, for sure. With, I mean, even little rhymes, you know, snakes and snails and puppy dog tails. What is talk about boys and uh, I can't even remember the whole rest of it. But I mean, we were just told how we were supposed to act and and girls didn't call boys and boys had to pay for the, you know, there were just certain things that were, uh, and again, maybe I'm just speaking culturally because in the, in the South, there are all of these, uh, gender norm. There's just these expectations of how people respond in decorum and politeness and all of that. And it, it's just, it's all up in how we express ourselves. Hey, Sarah, can I ask you this question? When you, before, um, before you transitioned, when you were presenting as male, did you did you have the, the male mannerisms? Was there any hint of anything else with you? And was and, and do you think part of that was or all of that maybe was culture? Um, you know, I don't know that I presented any mannerisms that gave any gave anything away. You know, I think I pulled it off really well. And in fact, it when um at work before I finally did you know when I've started telling people hey this is this is something that I'm dealing with um you know a lot of times I would make this joke as if and and there's a visual that goes along with it sorry podcast audience um where if you're if I I used to say uh, and this is all wrong too but I used to say if there if there's a, a hard line between straight and gay I've got my toes on the line and my arms are flailing in the air. And that was a mischaracterization of a lot of things because I now see myself very differently as far as my sexuality goes. But that came through the the gender transition, um, and so you know I was kind of I was kind of conflating that in that way. But that was my way to to tell people, you know, hey, this is uh, this is what's going on. And there were some people that you know that were not surprised by that. So maybe maybe I was more uh, you know, giving off more signals than maybe I thought I was. Yeah. And Julian, you grew up um, like I did, like Bill did, where it was a, a fundamentalist church. And what was what was your experience there? My experience um, was learning how to express myself in ways that were sufficiently neutral enough to avoid scorn and labeling, um, particularly anyone who was uh, feminine presenting, like most people would consider me to be, um, was suspected of being gay, which obviously there's a strong social bias against that. And in that fundamentalist community, an even stronger bias than in the broader society. Um, so you learn very quickly how you're allowed to express yourself, how you're allowed to present, how you're allowed to exist as a person. How did that feel for you? At the time, I think it felt like just what was expected of me and something I needed to do to um, fit into the world. Um, more recently, I've realized how alienated that made me from myself. And I've worked hard on trying to desocialize those ways that I would repress myself. How long did it take you to work through that process? And at what point did you see that that was even an issue? I think I'm still working through that process. Um, I think it took me 
several years after getting out of fundamentalism to realize that it was a problem. And I think that, you know, only within the last six months have I really started directly addressing this. And it's an ongoing thing for me. When someone meets you or gets to know you, and maybe they do make this assumption, they, they say, okay, he's gay. He has gay mannerisms. He has uh, whatever. Does that bother you at all? It only bothers me when people are insistent about it. Um, mm -hmm. The idea that because I look and present and speak in a particular way, that they know me better than I know myself, that they know who and what interests me better than I do, that bothers me because that's a deprivation of agency. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, any of the women I've dated in the last five or so years all initially thought I was gay and it didn't seem to be a problem. I, I think we, maybe all of us have had that where people seem to know us and they'll say, well, just, just give it some time. You'll eventually figure it out because I've certainly figured it out. You're gay and you'll, you'll know soon enough. And that is, I, I appreciate what you said, that it's just somebody assuming they know us better than we know ourselves. Yeah, I agree. I definitely experienced a lot of that in the fundamentalist community. And I'm glad that gradually as a society, we're moving on to a place where people have a little more freedom to express themselves in the way that feels right to them. And there, there's so much of our religious background that infiltrates our culture and we don't realize it. And our culture doesn't realize it because it just exists, right? It's kind of like being white. We're just white. We just are. How do you see that changing? And I know it changes in pockets. And Sarah, you're, you're in a more conservative area. So how, how do you see being gender non-conforming or being trans affect you on a regular daily basis? Yeah, it's strange for me because I sort of live in two worlds. The place where I live is very conservative. And then the place that I work is the gay mecca of the United States, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, the, the Walt Disney World bubble is a very accepting open place where it's just, you know, it, that that's just who's there. And, and it's, it's, everybody's fine with it, which is interesting because you have so many different cultures and people from all over the world who come to the theme parks here in Orlando um, as guests, and they bring with them their own sort of cultural baggage and interpretations and views but for the most part, it seems like those people are happy to put them away and go on vacation. The people that I live around, however, I'll give you a, a quick anecdote. And if it's not quick, I'll just edit it out later. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. brilliant. So, um, so we recently started an atheist community group here in the county. And one of the things that happened very shortly after we launched it the local newspaper came out and wanted to do a story on us. And so they came to one of our social meetups and I was sort of presenting to the, the group of people that were there, like, this is the things that we're really wanting to do and what we're interested in. And here's how we want to make this community great and all of these things. And one of the quotes that this reporter uh, pulled out from that talk was when I was talking about when equality is under attack, atheists have to show up. I was explaining that atheists have to be there for uh, the uh, for other marginalized communities who are on the other side of of the religious sword, right? 
And so for me as a trans person, that means the people that say, you're not a real woman, you can't use the women's restroom, mm -hmm. that comes from a place of religion. And uh, when that posted on online on Facebook, boy, did the comment section have a fun time with that. My neighbors, like these are people who live in the communities around me, you know, talking, uh, if you if you have a penis, you should be in the men's restroom and all of this kind of nonsense. Mm -hmm. And of course, the Internet is where civil discourse goes to die. Oh, uh, right. <laughs> but, you know, that that was still out there. But I think that uh, and, and I'm going to tread softly here. But there is still not just in culture in, 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 in at large, but even within the LGBTQ community, there is still, in my observation, anecdotally, still so much misunderstanding. Uh, gay and lesbian people misunderstand trans people. And the same with gender nonconforming men who present as very effeminate. There is this disconnect and 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 judgmentalism about it so it's not just that culture has a long way to go even within our own community i think we still have a long way to go yeah i would agree with you bill but i think within our community where we come from the main community and i was surprised when i started entering the the gay community that there were a lot of people that came from the a religious background it was it was the same. It was a lot of people who were hurt deeply by the religious background and they just cast it off. I wasn't able to do that. But going into it, I felt the same way. And I have a humiliating story I tell in my book about a friend of mine that we started going out and he and there was this guy who was very effeminate, had this little gold lame purse that he carried with him. And we met him, I don't know, some some club. And I wasn't even drinking at the time. So we met him at some club and then he invited us to this bar that everybody goes to. And it was him and his little friends. And he hated me and I hated him, mostly because he acted like a junior high girl and he was catty. Um, but I could not for the life of me understand why my friend who came out of the construction industry did not appear to be gay at all, was really drawn to this guy. And I was so judgmental about not just the guy himself, he, his character turned out to be what I thought it was, but it was it was his behavior. It was that effeminate behavior. And it disgusted me as a man. I thought men don't act like that. Mm. And it took a, a really long time. And in fact, it, I think it was a, that same friend at some point a few months later, we were sitting down talking and he said, you know, the way people behave, it, it, he said, there's a reason for that. There's a reason why they behave that way. And that really stuck, it, it, it stuck with me because I thought, well, why is that? You know, maybe there is more to this. Maybe there is a biological thing happening and maybe, maybe I'm judgmental. Mm -hmm. So it, it, but it was my culture. It's where I came from. And, yeah. and I just want to say something that what Sarah was talking about is that, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this lately, especially since we've been doing the podcast, is that there is a move away from the fundamentalist religion that has permeated the society. And it's being led by the LGBT community and LGBT allies. And I think much of that has to do with the fact that we can't conform as much as we wanted to, Bill, as much as we, mm -hmm. quote unquote, pass as straight guys, we can't conform. We're not. We're married to men. We have, you know, we're part of the gay community and it, it and our upbringing and the teaching, it just it doesn't fit us as much as we tried to make it fit us. It's not who we are. So I think just by existing, we 
we stand against all that is holy in a sense. <laughs> all, all that it represents is that we just naturally stand against that. And because of that, we've had to rethink what we believe and we've had to deal with the cognitive dissonance and make sense of what our lives truly are in light of the faith and belief and religion that we were raised in. And again, which permeates much of our society. Yeah, because we are we are merely a subset of culture, society as a whole. And I know in my own experience, and, and Tim, you and I have talked about this, as I began to come out, I had a different response when I began to meet the very effeminate men. Something inside me reached out after all the abuse I'd received all my life of not appearing feminine. When I met them, it was like such a release in me of, oh, they're so free that I mm. just embraced them with such a an openness of, I was so thankful for them. I was so appreciative that they were who they are and, and mm -hmm. just the, internally this jealousy. Now, my, my disconnect and where I had to learn was, as Sarah and I have talked about within the, within the trans community, because I had never consciously known anybody that was trans. And so early on, when I began to meet people who were either in some one stage or another of transitioning, uh, they were so patient with me and let me ask a lot of questions. And one took me to a, to a workshop, a seminar at the uh, Long Beach Gay and Lesbian Center. So that was the area that I really had to confront all of my training and background and, and religion. Mm -hmm. But the, the effeminate man, I just so wanted to be <laughs> that person. Julian, how have you dealt with your past of being involved in the church and, and now being where you are, getting more comfortable with who you are? What does that look like for you? How is, how is that unfolding for you? And how do you feel as uh, just more authentically? Really what it means is just expressing myself however feels natural to me in a given situation. And ultimately I've had to decide that if particular people are uncomfortable with me the way that I am, that they're not people that I need in my life. Do you find that people are mostly accepting? I find that in the circles I am in now, yes. Um, I still find when I go back to places I used to be um, in the fundamentalist community that I still get some very mixed and unfavorable responses. So when you get dressed in the morning, are you really conscious about where you're going and how that's going to look to people that you're with? Not in any way that everyone doesn't think about dressing for the occasion. I am trying to live a life that is free of caring about what other people think in that regard. Are you able to, you talked about having people that you're around, I guess, talk about this, talk about what you've done to find a community to which you belong, where you feel like you belong there. Sure. So I live in Portland, Maine. Um, I grew up in Northern Maine, which was a very religious, very rural area and just moving, um, even within the same state, I've been able to spend time in a community where people are free to be more or less, however, feels natural to them. And that's made a very big difference to me, um, getting away from certain fundamentalist and very rural cultures and being able to spend time around um, people who are a little more accepting and a little more exposed to people who aren't like themselves. 
So going to different things, like um, I am also a support group leader with Recovering from Religion. So one of the ways that I have encountered people is in that capacity. And a lot of people, a lot of people in the post-religious community have experienced the same sort of things and are able to talk about it. And that helps a lot. And Sarah, what about you? How do you, how, how did you find your place to belong? Did you always feel like you had people around you that supported you? Or did you really have to go out and look for that place where, where you fit in? Yeah, I did. I, you know, when I was in that small middle of nowhere town in Illinois, um, I felt very alone in, in a lot of ways. I didn't have a lot of friends. I was, you know, I was kind of the loner that sat in the uh, I sat in the band room during lunch and uh, played around on a guitar and a piano and and just I just didn't socialize. I didn't in, interact with a lot of people. So I didn't have a, a large peer group to start with um, back home. And then when I moved here to Florida, it, it was just I, that I didn't do that with any conscious thought of this is something about myself and and I'm I'm going to go to a place that's more accepting. That that didn't enter my mind at all. I wanted to work at Disney World. I thought that was going to be the coolest job in the world and so we loaded up the car and drove to Florida, right? Hmm. But that was kind of a happy byproduct of that was that uh it, first it forced me to face a lot of those uh, you know terrible misconceptions that I had about people who are different from growing up in lily white cornfield america mm -hmm. and that introduced me to the people who were going to support me no matter what hmm. right because this process could be very lonely when you don't fit the norm yes how do you deal with that for me i'm lucky that i have a wonderful wife and kids that uh, you know and i'm just with all of the stuff that we're busy with i keep myself busy that's part of it mm-hmm just with all of the stuff that we have going on and they are really my support group that that keeps me going and i'm sort of learning too like with this new atheist group that we're building haven't had anybody once there yet tell me that i'm a freak and need to you know stay out of the women's room uh surprise surprise you're not a real woman atheist uh, yeah, right? Right. you can't even be a real atheist yeah. oh, gosh so uh so how do i deal with uh, the, that loneliness i really i pour myself into uh things that that i'm passionate about you know when i when i don't have a community around me it's it's usually the the audio stuff and website design and and when I can plan with my kids and spend the time with the family and, and that sort of thing. And, and something that you spoke to a minute ago, I had to prepare myself when I when I was deciding that this was something that I was going to do. I'm going to announce to the world that I'm trans and I'm going to start taking steps. I prepared myself mentally to lose everyone that I loved. Hmm. Family, friends. The, all the way down the list. I was prepared. I had to, in my mind, okay, worst case scenario, everyone bails on you. And I'm thankful that that didn't happen. But so much of, and I think this comes along with some of that anxiety and, and depression stuff that I've dealt with my whole life. Mm -hmm. I, I went to that worst case scenario to, to really kind of prepare myself for that. Mm. And, and your story, we, I, I encourage people, as Tim said at the beginning, we interviewed Sarah and, and her wife, Becca, 
uh, early on in, in our interviews and their story is so incredible. Becca brought me to tears on the air uh, and they were married as Sarah began her transition. And so the choices they had to make and, and these things were so powerful. So uh, I encourage you to listen to that episode that we did because it, it's just an incredible story. She really is the best. She is. I, I have just fell in, I fell in love with her. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say, you know, this whole idea of belonging, because a lot of us belong to the church or the community where we grow up or where we attend church or services or these beliefs. And when we rethink those, we lose that that sense of belonging. But more than that, you know, psychologically speaking, is that when we don't feel like we belong somewhere, usually identify shame. We carry a lot of shame with us, and so if you're if you're feeling like you can't connect into a community, the, the question is, why are you feeling that way? What is the shame that's driving that lack of connection? And the flip side of that, going back to our initial discussion about Stonewall, is that you had a group of people that didn't belong, a group of people that found themselves together, and they changed the world. They created a community. And in that community, they found strength and they found power and they didn't let the fact that they were different take them down, but they confronted society that told them there was something wrong with them. So there is, there is a strength to nonconformity. There's a strength to being different. There's a, a strength to authenticity that we often miss because if, if you're like me, where you grew up in the church, you wanted nothing more than to be quote unquote normal. You just, you just wanted to fit in. You just wanted to to look like everybody else and be like everybody else and drive the same car like everybody else. Yes. But in doing so, we lose our power. Right. We lose that, that spark in us. And I remember uh, <laughs> I was sitting with my therapist uh, at one point and I, I was crying and I think it was after going gay came out. And I said, I, I just, I don't want to be gay. I, d- I don't want to be gay. And he said, but if you weren't gay, you wouldn't be you. All of those things that make us who we are, for better, for worse, or how we judge them or how we see them are the things that make us us and they're the things that make us unique and they're the things that give us the most influence, the most power, the part of us that that does not only change the world, but it changes us and it changes the people around us. And getting to know people like Sarah and Julian who yes. are gender nonconforming, getting just sitting and talking to them because as we've spent time, me especially, uh, or, or for me, I can only speak for me, Listening to Julian tell his story, as uh, not just here, but as we've talked in private, it's fascinating to me to hear it from a perspective of someone who is who is judged by their. I mean, we all know this reality of being judged by our mannerism or the way that we talk, but listening to it from his perspective is so interesting. So I encourage people not just you know yes, listen to our podcast because uh, Tim is wonderful, but. Get to know people who are different than you are. Uh, you'll learn so much from them. Yeah, thank you, guys. So we are about to interview Dr. Donovan Ackley III. So hang on to this. Dr. Ackley has an amazing story that you're not going to want to miss on this special episode, commemorating Stonewall. Recovering from Religion is funded by those who believe in what we do. We invite you to support us with a monthly or one-time donation. Go to our website, recoveringfromreligion.org, and click on the Donate button for instructions. On the website, you'll also find an extensive database of resources, including links, articles, and videos. 
We offer 24-hour phone and chat line support, along with the links to meetup groups in 20 communities around the U.S. With our Secular Therapy Project, we can connect you with a professional who offers evidence-based, non-religious treatment. Our partner therapists understand the complexities of rethinking or leaving your faith. Finally, Recovering from Religion is an entirely volunteer-run organization. If you're interested in being a volunteer with us, please visit recoveringfromreligion.org and look for the Volunteer tab. Many of us at Recovering from Religion know that changes to our beliefs about God create doubt and uncertainty. We too have found ourselves without a community and lacking guidance. With this in mind, we've developed the Recovering from Religion Fall Excursion. We will be debuting this event in the tranquil mountains of North Carolina, where the stars are bright and the air is clear and fresh. Join us for workshops on embracing healthy sexuality, leaving fears of hell behind, yoga, a guided hike from our very own Dr. Daryl Ray, stargazing, wine and cider tasting, campfires, music, great food, and of course, great company. The on-site lodges are comfortable and modern, and our registration includes all meals and activities. Tickets and lodging are limited, so register early at recoveringfromreligion.org for our first ever fall excursion, September 20th through the 22nd. Free from judgment and free from dogma, rediscover yourself. We are very excited to welcome Donovan Ackley, and Donovan is a former professor of religious studies with over 30 years experience in grassroots community organizing and nonviolent conflict resolution, most recently helping to launch the Trans, Non-Binary, and Gender Non-Conforming Communities U.S.-Canadian Peer Support Suicide Prevention Line, Trans Lifeline. After 20 years teaching theology, church history of, world religions, and even yoga, Donovan has spent the past six years in trauma-informed crisis intervention, currently as case management team lead for recovery residents with women and children recovering from addiction. Donovan holds a PhD in philosophy of religion and has published several books, many articles, and consulted on the 2019 Intersex and Faith film, exploring the intersections of religion and gender. So Donovan, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Good to have you with us. Thanks. Good to be here. Donovan, a few years ago, when you and I met, we were at the, the Gay Christian Network. I, I was able to interview you. I think about a month or so after that conference, I interviewed you in, uh, for an article in the Goodman Project. And I went back and I reread the article. And I, I know a lot has changed since the last time we talked. So I want to kind of get up to speed. And there's a couple of things that I, I was reading the article and I thought, gosh, we really need to talk about that because you, you've been through a lot, of, a lot of stuff. So can you give us a, a background, really, of where you've been, where, you're, where you've come from, and you know how you got where you are right now? I'm kind of old, so that's a long story. <laughs> I'll try to cut to the chase a little bit. So, gosh, I don't know how to focus all that. Um, well, like you said in the intro, I spent about 20 years teaching uh, religion of various kinds, most of that in an evangelical Christian university. Now, I was... Um, I have an intersex condition, so when I was born, um, I might looked like a little boy to my mom, but the doctor decided I was going to be a girl. So my point is, I was raised I was raised as a girl. I lived as a woman, and when I was teaching theology, uh, I was living as a woman. Um, I was an ordained minister. Some things are the same. I, you know, my my education obviously and my my background, but uh, the living as a woman uh, that was something I had to take female hormones as an intersex person. I had to take female hormones in order to do that. 
And by the time I hit my 40s and start going through change of life, like a lot of intersex people do, I came to a point where I couldn't tolerate those female hormones anymore. I actually got deathly ill. Um, I was on a leave from my university teaching post because really they thought I was going to die. Um, and I had to stop taking the female hormones. I got to stop taking psych meds that I was using for the depression that I was having, living in a way that didn't really make sense for my body or my personality or anything. But anyway, so I got better, which is good. But unfortunately, me getting better also uh, entailed me coming out as not being a woman. And I was married to a man at the time and uh, had been married to a man before that. And so I said, you know, I still love men. That's That's still my thing. So anyway, that was problematic, uh, to say the least, at this evangelical university. So I, uh, I was asked to leave in the middle of the semester and, and thus began. Um, my students were very upset about that. They didn't want me to go. I didn't want to leave them in the middle of the semester. So I'm trying to cut to the chase. The, when I met you, Tim, it was because I was involved in a national organization called Safety Net, um, working with kids on campuses that were religious, like the one I had been formerly teaching at. Um, so LGBTQI students that, you know, many in many of those universities were not welcome at all and could not be out of the closet, but would form support groups. And so those of us around the country who had been faculty at places like that or who were alumni from places like that tried to sort of mentor and support and advocate for those students. And so I know that organization still exists, but I was also trying to launch Trans Lifeline at the time which kind of started out as uh, my Facebook page, actually. Mine and another person who became a friend, we got introduced and we were doing the same kind of work just using Facebook Messenger. Um, I, was, I was very much in the news for a while, so Christians from around the world who were trans or who had trans kids, one very famous family that had a trans kid that ended up ending, taking her life, people would find me from all over the world and they would reach out to me and I would try to you know, be supportive because at that time there really just weren't a lot of resources for folks who were trans and Christian and didn't know how, they didn't know how to navigate that and that sort of thing. So anyway, I thought, well, if we get a bunch of us together and kind of do this work together, we'll have some accountability. We can support each other in doing it. It'll just be better if it's not just a bunch of isolated individuals trying to do this privately. So anyway, we launched Trans Lifeline. I was able to shepherd that. I had done accreditation work at the university when I was a department chair. So I used that skill set to help get Trans Lifeline accredited by Suicide Prevention. Um, it's the same org that oversees National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. But anyway, so they have a national accreditation now. And so I stepped aside because they're up and running and they don't, you know, I don't, it's not my Facebook page anymore, which is, was my goal. Yeah. So and now, now I'm just trying to live life. It was a very traumatic uh, bunch of changes. Um spent some time homeless after leaving the university and uh, have had a really hard time finding work and have two kids to support. So, you know, it's, it's, I've, I've done everything from working at Home Depot to working as a security guard while doing this national advocacy work. So I'm just kind of trying to just live life, I guess. So let's let's back up a little bit because that, that was sorry that was a big question. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack here. I gave you a big answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Go ahead. So uh, kind of explain growing up because you you did not grow up in the evangelical faith, right? Or or if you did, it was a more progressive version. Well, that's true. That's true. Um, my uh, my dad was a student at Kent State University on the day that the people got that the students got shot there. So. 
when I said I've had sort of a lifetime of grassroots nonviolent organizing and stuff, um, my parents were both not not really deeply involved in grassroots organizing work, but they definitely, I, in the past, I've called them hippies. That was my perspective. That may not be the term they use for themselves, but but they were definitely invested in social justice. They were definitely living very simple lives and very sort of for the for the Midwest. I grew up in uh, this in, in Cleveland area in Ohio. So, I mean, for the time and place that I was at, my parents were sort of very far left of most of the folks we knew. They were not fans of religion. They'd been brought up in various, in Christianity, I'll say, in sort of rural Midwestern Christianity, and they weren't really fans. They were pretty critical of it. So I came to faith on my own, just looking for answers. Um, I was an ordained deacon in the Presbyterian Church by the time I was 18, but that was something I picked up on my own. And I, yeah, I did have a very progressive approach to it. I went to a church that was active in the nuclear freeze movement and in Native American rights and and fed hungry people out of the church. And that was part of what we did as deacons. So when I came to Christianity, it was very much with a progressive commitment. I was looking for answers around my gender and sexual orientation identities. And yeah, that would, it, it got, it went sideways from there. How did you end up in the, the fundamentalist evangelical faith or around it? That was really an accident in that I, I married someone uh, when I was doing my PhD. I married someone that I met in church and I was in a peace church, a small peace church. It was a house church. It fit with my own progressive commitments, but he was from a more evangelical background himself, even though he was in this peace church. He suggested I apply to a local evangelical college when I uh, or university when I uh, got my PhD in theology. It was somewhere I would never have wanted to work. Had always had been at a very progressive seminary and graduate school, and we kind of laughed at this place down the road. Um, so I really didn't want to work there, but um, but they did offer me a, a one year full time teaching position, and I thought that I was just going to be there a year to get some teaching experience. And then again, it just one thing led to another, and I ended up there 15 years. So um, I didn't become an evangelical. That wasn't a thing, but I was sort of a stranger in a strange land for about 15 years, teaching as a progressive Christian in an evangelical setting, and really feeling like um, it was my job to help those young students understand that there were other ways to practice their faith. Because a lot of them were sent there by parents and, and were very thirsty for sort of other ways of understanding their faith, particularly the LGBTQI kids. Did you did you know early on that you were intersex? I didn't know a word for it. I didn't have a diagnosis until I was 49. And this was after all this stuff happened in the media and after I'd been, you know, I'd have suffered a lot of loss and shame and public humili- humiliation and death threats and all these other things for, for coming out as trans. and um, I suspected it. And I used to tell when I would do presentations or be asked to talk about it, or even when I first started talking about it with people at the university, like my boss or my students, I would always mention that, you know, it's odd that when I was born, I, my mom thought I was a boy. And I, and I, there's always been something that's not typical for me. And then I had to take female hormones from the time I was 15, which again, isn't typical of most females to have to take, you know, to have to artificially feminize. So I didn't know why, but I knew there was something. But um, yeah, so I didn't have, the, I didn't formally have a diagnosis, and I and I was confused when I first came out. One of my regrets is that I didn't understand myself 
that being trans and being intersex are actually two different things and not all people who are trans have an intersex condition. I guess in my own head, I thought all trans people had some sort of underlying physiological thing going on and that it, you know, I generalized my own experience, unfortunately. Are you comfortable talking to people who, who are listening who might not understand the difference in trans and intersex? Oh, of course. Yeah, I think it's important to help people understand, um, especially since some of us who have these conditions don't even realize. You know, I certainly didn't. Um, so an intersex condition is something that's a congenital medical situation. There's about, I, I want to say something like 36 different intersex conditions. I mean, there there's more being discovered and some of those are organized in various ways so that some may say there are fewer, but there are variations of each one, whatever it is, but there's many different intersex conditions. Mine is one that affects my endocrine system, and it is genetic. It is something that runs in family. Since I got diagnosed, there's other people I'm very closely related to. There's a stigma to it, so I'm not going to say who, but, um, but who have this diagnosis as well, it turns out. So yes, it runs in families, and my endocrine system is such that it, isn't, it doesn't respond much to estrogen. I used to have to take very, very high doses of estrogen and progesterone that would be at the level that a nine-month pregnant woman would have in her body. That's how much I had to artificially take to even sort of modestly be somewhat androgynous. So I have this this thing. Anyway, other folks might have um, the other version of that, you know, that, that, that their body, they might be genetically male, but their body is more sensitive to estrogen and doesn't really do much with testosterone. So it can be something in the endocrine system. It can be a genetic variation. Some people have XXY instead of XY or XX. Um, some people have a mosaic of X and Y. There's all kinds of different conditions. So that's intersex. Where you and, and the reason when I say that not all intersex folks are trans is that some intersex folks will, like myself, you know, they'll be they'll be assigned whatever gender at birth. They're assigned male, they're assigned female, because up until recently, most people didn't get assigned intersex. They didn't just get to grow up as, oh, you're, you're an intersex kid. You know, they had to be, they were assigned one way or the other. So, so many of those intersex folks actually do identify with whatever they got assigned. So they're not going to transition. They're not going to, they don't need to change their name or their legal documents. They don't need to have any special medical intervention or anything like that. Uh, trans folks are uh, a disproportionate number of us do have intersex conditions, but not all of us have intersex conditions. So uh, a tr trans just means somebody that in some kind of way doesn't identify with the gender they were assigned at birth. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate you doing that. I, I, I just think that many people, it's so new, as you, as you mentioned, it's just new and, and not everyone understands or gets that distinction. And I, I think it's important, especially as we're talking here for pride and gender nonconformity for people to understand. I would want to interject. It's not entirely new, but maybe some of our language for it is changing. But we do yes. know that, of course, intersex people and, and, and individuals exist in every species, including plants. So, so intersex isn't new, but we don't always, you know, we haven't been using that word for it for very long. So around the time that you were born, right, there was a guy named uh, Dr. John Money who was making decisions or, or had proliferated this idea that if you you could choose what gender you wanted the baby to be, and then the, the, that baby would just live out whatever gender that was because gender was nurtured instead of nature, right? So is that where you were in that timeline? Is it they just assumed that they would pick one and then you would be okay? 
I think that was a pretty standard practice even even before John Money, but that was John Money really took that and ran with it and made it the standard that um that the American Medical Association and the American you know the, the the different guilds were using for a long time until recently um certainly those theories have been disproven since then that that you can't just do that to a child but um I could really go on about John Money. I mean, it, I, I, I'll try to bite my tongue somewhat because I don't know if that's a tangent you want to run off on. But it's interesting that I was born within months of when that would have had a direct impact on my life. And I think about that a lot. Being a person of faith, I think about that a lot because mm. one thing that was a real gift to me is that had I been born even a few months later or certainly a year later, I probably would have been surgically altered, I think, you know, and I wasn't. Uh, many, 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 many of my younger friends and not much younger friends were sterilized as infants. Wow. You know, I went on to have two children. Most of my intersex friends are never going to be able to have biological children. And that choice was made for them in infancy or early childhood. So um, I do feel very, very blessed that I escaped John Money's influence. My, my situation was just one of socialization and not one of medical intervention Unt until I was 15. And then the artificial hormones, that's something that the recovery from that's a little bit more possible than, than the surgical alterations. Mm. Can you explain once you got involved in the evangelical church and you have this condition, you have the, the mental issues, or the, you know, the, certainly the cognitive dissonance that's going on, what was that like for you in the church when it comes to predefined gender roles and how they're presented to the church? Uh, I was always having a lot of anger and depression around that. And of course, like I said earlier, I didn't know I was an intersex person. So this was this was truly, I was socialized female. We didn't make over much of that, what we thought of as a funny story about me being seen as a male for just a few seconds or minutes of my life. I leaned into being a female. I was raised as a feminist by a feminist mother, and I did my best to live in the role I was assigned. And um, when I joined the church, like I said, I joined progressive churches first, but almost immediately I started noticing that it wasn't a feminist organization like what I was used to in my family. <laughs> uh, <laughs> even in the progressive churches, I, I really, I mean, I'd been raised on Free to Be You and Me, and my mother was a charter subscriber to Ms. Magazine, and yeah, I was raised with now and, and, you know, rallying for the ERA and things like this. So nothing could have been more different to me than the church. So just navigating that and especially being called to ordination, like I said, I was ordained at 18 as a deacon. And that wasn't a huge deal in the Presbyterian church as someone that was perceived female. But as I continued to progress through life, continued to try to understand gender was my focus really as I was trying to understand this faith that and violence, to understand gender and violence and how things had gone so far afield from what I was drawn to in this faith and how it was being lived out, at least in the United States. I know I'm, I'm really all over the place. I, I had very intense feelings about it. It was just a lot of anger, a lot of confusion, and a lot of, they're not doing their own religion right. What gives here? And then, of course, right after I became a Christian, that was in the mid-80s, um, AIDS was AIDS broke out. The more moral majority got excessively focused on gay men and AIDS, and in such a hostile way. And everything in me screamed uh, how wrong that was, and how that didn't make any sense at all as part of this religious community. So that again, that became my sort of ex uh, obsessive focus to like 
that's how I ended up getting a PhD in religion was I wanted to read the Bible in the original languages. And, and so I went where they had the only copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls outside of Jerusalem at the time, which was out here in California, where I live now. I know I'm I, sorry, there's a lot I could say about it. I just, I'm very, very focused on sort of how do we reform the church by bringing it back to what it originally taught and practiced yeah. uh, around gender, gender and sexual orientation, probably more than any other issues. Well, when you came in, when you were talking about it in the in the 80s and, and, and the church, I actually posted on my Facebook page today a cartoon by the naked pastor. Uh, he's a cartoonist that I just just so admire his his sense of humor. And uh, he posted one today that says, ever since I became an evangelical, I can't stop obsessing about what other people do with their genitals. And, and I think that Back in the 80s, it, it kind of started that as evangelicals, I was there myself. We were concerned about what everyone else was doing, which brings a question to my mind. Your journey from from progressive, I mean, you were part of the Church of the Brethren and the Mennonites that I have such respect for their history and their culture and their belief system. You then it took you all the way to Azusa Pacific, which is a strongly strict evangelical. Uh, university. That's a journey within itself that seems unique. Right. That's why I was I was mentioning earlier that uh, what what happened with that was I did not want to work at his, I didn't want to name names, but since you brought it up, that was the university down the road that we laughed at in my seminary and grad school as, you know, who would ever teach there? Who would ever go to school there? It, it didn't have any credibility as a scholarly organization in the eighties and I'm going to bite my lip about where we are today, but (laughs) regardless of that back then, yeah, it wasn't somewhere I aspired to work by any means, by any stretch of the imagination. And you're right. I I was ordained as a Mennonite. I became a brethren actually after I became, um, after I was at APU, I was, I came in as a Mennonite pastor and within a few years I ended up, uh, uh, shifting to the Church of the Brethren, but they're very similar. And it was a very friendly transition that just had to do what with what local congregation I was involved with. So at APU, again, that was why I was only offered a one-year contract because they didn't really seem to, they didn't want me any more than I wanted them, to be honest. It's, it's kind of not, I often think about that with the way things turned out 15 years later, but we, we had a very prickly relationship from the start. Um, I was not, I was not at all hiding the fact that I was, was, my uh, commitments were were progressive, that my writing was progressive, that I was going to continue to work on gender studies. I ended up publishing my first book on gender studies and religion while I was at APU. I published several articles uh, several years before I, they ended up letting me go, uh, several articles on being an open and affirming uh, church as far as sexual orientation and gender identity issues. So I had published those in, in um theological journals while I was at APU too. So I was, I was not going to back down from my own commitments. And the, it, it was, it was a very difficult, depressing experience to constantly be in conflict with some people that I otherwise liked and respected, you know, in terms of my supervisors and coworkers and sometimes students. But, but at the same time, I felt that I had a call to be there that I really believe this as a person of faith. I really believe like I must be here because God wants me to be here. And there must be some people that need this message and this more um, sort of historically 
grounded um, kind of theology and, and teaching so that they know that they have a choice, you know, because it's certainly in those even those very narrow evangelical circles. And it's often presented as if this is the only right way to be a Christian. And I definitely had a different message to carry. And I did. Sounds like you were the enigma there, because I've I, what I began to research you and your background and your biography. And I read Tim's article that he wrote uh, because he is one of my favorite writers. Uh, but I, I saw that you were there for so long and some of the things that you did. And I do know that there were probably some people there that really appreciated that. But I can see where it had to be very stressful when you're constantly feeling like you're going against against the stream. I mean, both stressful and um, how can I say I did have a very, very vivid sense of call. I felt like I was doing God's work in that sense yes. that it's like if I leave. There were some other colleagues doing progressive work there, and some of them are still there. So I don't want to at all uh, downplay that. There were few enough of us, and of us who were there, there were so few that were willing to be as vocal as I was. I know there are some that are vocal there now, so I, I, I want to commend them for that. But but um, it, it, it was a difficult path to walk, and yet I, I had a clear sense of purpose in doing it. So that I, I just want to express gratitude for that. Since Bill brought up that article, when I interviewed you, um, one of the things you said, I was talking to, you said for years you tried to be the good Christian woman and you were told that, told that you needed to be, but conforming to the, the traditional gender roles, being a woman in an evangelical Christian environment is difficult. And you said, as difficult as it is to approach and address one's gender identity, if you're born into a community of faith, you really don't know how to navigate that. I would imagine as a professor, your progressive views walking into a more conservative environment, you're seeing a lot of young people that are coming out of a, an oppressive environment or oppressive religious um, churches, dogmas, whatever you want to call it. What was your role there? Well, how, how did you relate to these young women or even men? And what was your approach to them when you, when you saw a conflict between who they felt they needed to be and who they were? Yeah, that that addresses that sense of call that I had. I, I am really grateful that I leaned in as long as I did uh, to studying scripture and that original goal I had of understanding it in the original languages. I leaned into what ancient Christians did. I didn't make it about myself because like Bill was saying, I was seen as a very suspect person. I mean, people in that community saw me as a radical feminist. Uh, you know, Mennonites and brethren were not admired. It was sonnet. If people even knew what it was, it was like, I won't say who. There were some administrators who were very vocal that Christian pacifists were, well, before, before all these gender identity issues broke out, Christian pacifists were their worst scourge, you know, in that university. They didn't want us teaching Christian pacifism even. So to talk about gender and, and sexual orientation issues and things like that, it was important for me to always be able to lean into this is what scripture says, because they could take that seriously. I didn't make, I guess that's what I was trying to say. I'm not making it about myself because I was suspect. So it wasn't about sharing my own story or my own opinions, because that would, if anything, bias students against whatever I was trying to say. So really developed a deep love of, um, you know, the ancient Christians and, and, and the church before the split between Catholicism and Orthodoxy and Christi uh, uh, Protestant branches of Christianity, 
So to look back in that first, you know, thousand years or so and say, okay, now here's the church, you know, here's the roots of the church and especially the church before Constantine and be able to say, this is what was going on. Here's what's taught. I'd have the students a lot of times read really ancient texts with me and we would read them out loud. And those would be, instead of the newer stuff, this very ancient stuff would be the core of what I taught in many, many classes. And I didn't have to comment on that a lot. They would see for themselves that Christian pacifism, egalitarianism, and a very different way of navigating gender that was definitely part of the ancient world. And I, and I would bring in commentary as well, especially for gender that needed to be expressed more explicitly to help them. I remember teaching Augustine one time, Augustine's Confessions, and in the third chapter, he talks about the love of his life, who was a fellow university student. And, and I spent a full class session, you know, just focusing on the first part of that chapter three in the Confessions and saying, you do understand that in ancient times, the university was not co-ed, right? He's saying that the love of his life is another guy. And, and I'm saying this, I was saying this literally in the prayer chapel, and it's an outdoor prayer chapel. Uh, of the campus of this evangelical campus with evangelical. <laughs> the, the women were kind of okay with it, but the, the male students were looking at me like, you're not really saying what I'm saying. And I just sit there silently and keep looking. You do understand that, right? You understand. Uh, it was, yeah. So those are the kinds of things I did, you know, I let, I let the church speak for itself. Well, you know, it's funny about that is I, when I was in church um, around the time that part of the time you were teaching is, um, is that we looked at Azusa Pacific as a very liberal college. Mm -hmm. It wasn't teaching the conservative ideology that we believed. And, you know, of course, we came into it thinking that, that our way was right and it had always been that way. Right. So, so I can imagine what they must have gone through bringing you in and they're kind of holding their breath thinking, eh, I don't know what's going what's gonna to happen here. But uh, yeah, so, so the, the flip side of that coin is that they were just as afraid of you. <laughs> I wasn't afraid of them. I was always ready to get fired anytime. I did not want to be. I can't really? stress that strongly enough. I mean, I was me, like regardless of the fact that if you had walked past me at that time, you would have seen a person in a dress. It's still me on the inside. It's very same commitment, same everything. Yeah. Um, same mindset. So uh, it was very uncomfortable for me to be there. I always thought of it in terms of reverse mission. I just didn't want to drop that phrase in this. You know, I don't know if y'all are familiar with that or if that's triggering or whatever, but that's how I, to use language that they use, that's how I, I thought of my work there. And um, I was more than happy to, to get let go. I didn't want it to happen in the middle. I didn't like the way it happened, you know, to have it happen in the middle of the semester. I never thought it would go down like that, but. And so publicly. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. <laughs> right. Very but, few of us get our terminations on national news, so. Geez, no, no, that was, that was the worst. No, <laughs> you know, the students meant well, but it, you know, then I was a, in the public eye for a couple of years after that. And I'm a very shy person. So that was very awkward for me at best. but. um. Yeah, I mean, I, I figured we'd end up parting ways. It's either they were going to come around. This is what I thought. I thought, I know what, it's God's will one way or the other. I'm here to help them either do better and and we can see that we both love Jesus. We both love scriptures. And if we can just talk this out and we realize what they actually say. And at that time, I believed in reform work. I'm, I don't really believe that's possible anymore, at least not in the way things are currently in the U.S., but at the time I was very committed to reform work and I was open to that happening. At the same time, I was enough of a realist to say, 
you know, they're clearly not happy with the things that I need to do to be a good teacher. So at some point, they're probably going to let me go. Right. Donovan, when you say reform work, can you expand on that for me? Because you said you you assumed that we understood it. And I'll, I'll just admit, I don't know exactly what you mean by reform work. Sure, of course. You know, I for one thing, oh, well, one thing I was coming out of the tradition of feminist theology. And so this, this is really what I'm drawing. When I say reform, I'm really thinking about that, to be honest with you. So in feminist theology, there's, there's these three school of thought that you can kind of either sort of collaborate with people the way things are, sort of, you know, not really, you're, maybe you've conformed to the status quo, I don't know. Then there's that sort of other end of the extreme where it's like, you're, you're so radical that you're like, you know what, this institution cannot be transformed it's it's beyond redemption it's it's too sick and toxic there's nothing there's not enough value here to to redeem it or to try to work with it and then that sort of middle path is that reform path where it's like okay i know this is a patriarchal it's it's gone on a patriarchal path maybe even its roots are patriarchal but there's also some egalitarianism here and if i dig deep enough and if i work enough with folks who are interested in collaborating and dialoguing, then maybe we can make something healthy of this either again or for the first time or whatever. So, so I was in that middle school of thought, you know, the whole time I was a Christian, I could see the dangerous elements of, you know, patriarchy and misogyny and definitely homophobia after the AIDS crisis hit and things like that. But I I really didn't think that was part and parcel of what Christianity actually was uh, or Judaism, what, you know, any of the uh, sort of any of those religions of the book, I was like, there's so much good here, too. And I did believe it was divine revelation involved in that. And I did believe in a, you know, non-gendered spirit, a whole uh, uh, bringing life. And, you know, I, anyway, that's what I was trying to lean into. I thought if we can just get to the heart of this religion together, we'll, we'll be able to bring, I don't know, we'll be able to come together in a healthy way instead of a, a being hurt by this religion. Right. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Donovan, let me take you back for a second, because when, again, when I interviewed you back in 2015, you described what I would say was a pretty traumatic event, right? You talked about earlier where you struggled to, to attach to your female identity. And then you said you, you know, you're, you're in the hospital and then you hear um, your medical team tell you that you're transgender. So you've struggled with with the the medication that you're on. You said that you struggle with alcoholism. You're trying to, again, deal with the cognitive dissonance. Take us back to that moment. You're in the hospital. All hell is broken loose around you. Now you, now you hear your medical team tell you, oh, this, the issue is that you're transgender. What did that feel like? Well, it wasn't quite exactly like that. I was uh, I was in the hospital quite a lot in 2012. Um, it was it was a slow sort of wasting away, uh, where I was on a lot of psych not a lot of psych meds. I was on some psych meds. I was on some female hormones, and the team didn't connect that me not being able to digest food anymore and my body kind of shutting down over the period of a year and a half. They didn't connect the dots between all those things. Um, so. What you're talking about, that moment when somebody had a breakthrough idea, I wasn't actually in a hospital at that point. I was just basically at home on bed rest because there was nothing more they could do. Um, and so I I was seeing a new therapist because the team I'd been working with didn't, was out of ideas. I went to see a new therapist. Um, uh, I also stopped. 
I stopped drinking. I had been drinking, um, thinking that that was a way to get nourishment in my body since I couldn't hold on to food anymore. Bad idea, obviously. It seems kind of dumb now. But anyway, so I'd stopped drinking. And when I stopped drinking, um, I, as weak as I was, I just couldn't go back into that female identity. I went to see this therapist and she said, well, have you ever tried just not living as a woman? You know, have you, have you ever thought that maybe this description of what you're describing to me is actually, it might be that you're trans, transgender, um, that, and, and just, just try not living as a female. You haven't tried that before. And it was true. I had not tried that before, but it seemed, it almost seems too simple as I'm telling you right now, but the way it felt, you asked me the way it felt, the way it felt at the time was, I know it felt like a relief. It's hard. Uh, it, it just, I felt, a. a, a just a huge sense of relief wash over me at the time because it had been, since I was eight years old, I had been in therapy. I'd been in one form of therapy and at work, you know, psychiatry, all kinds of different treatments, which I now see are sort of reparative therapies, but I would bring the issue of gender up. I would bring my sexual orientation up because I was attracted to men. I would say, I feel like I'm gay, but that doesn't make any sense because I'm, you know, I'm a female. Like I, I did none of it made sense to me. And they would just say, well, you're nuts. You know, that's fine. You're, you're this, you're that, you're the other, whatever. And they'd treat me with psychotherapies. But so this was the first time I was 47, um, or it was right before my 47th birthday. It was the first time someone said to me, I don't think you're mentally ill. I think you're just trans. So why don't you just try this? So um, I tried long before this broke in the news or anything, I tried just not living with any kind of gender. Uh, so I, I, stopped. Uh, I didn't stop the female hormones though, because I'd been told that I needed those. So, but I did taper off the psych meds and I got enough relief from the mental anguish of living this false life and just being able to, um, my spiritual mentor at the time said to me, have you ever tried praying thank you for God making you this way? And I'd never done that either. I had done the, the thing that Paul talks about, you know, play, praying to have the thorn in my flesh removed. I'd done nothing but that. Many, much anguish. I have scars all over my body still from, you know, I literally did penance because fasting and prayer didn't make it go away. So I literally did self-injury to have card crosses carved all in my skin from many years from the time I was 16 till I was in my 40s really trying to make these prayers stick. And I know that sounds out like this is one reason they thought I was mentally ill. And I know that's unbalanced behavior. I don't do that anymore, obviously. But it's, you know, I was that unbalanced. I was just, I was trying to make it work. And, and her and my mentor saying, how about try not living as a female and maybe even being thankful to be different. It just, it lifted all that anguish. Right. So it was, yeah, I didn't suddenly turn into a man. I didn't suddenly start living as gay. I didn't even suddenly come out, but I, I was relieved of the anguish. And I've never taken psych meds since then. And I've been physically and mentally much healthier. So not, not growing up in the fundamentalist faith, I mean, it doesn't, it does, it doesn't have that, um, it doesn't mess with your head like it does for those of us who did. But nevertheless, you have your, your PhD in theology. You have this long background or long history in um, the Christian faith, did you at some point or do you at some point question the authenticity of your faith? That's that's a really good question. I would say yes, yes. I think I did. I've had times of doubt. I, I want to say 
I mean, again, I'm kind of oldish. You know, I'm in my 50s now, so I, I can't say for sure, but I want to say that I've always had. Wait a minute. Oldish? <laughs> I'm 67. I'm 67, so I'm, I'm going to click off now and go to bed. Oh, no, no. Come on now. I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. It's a lot of time. How about this? For someone as wordy as me, that's a lot of stories. I'll put it that way. Oh, <laughs> listen, I, listen, we're we're kindred spirits here, not just in our theology background and training and 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 all of that, but in our stories. Yes. So trying to, I'm just trying not to to paint an inaccurate picture, but I do believe that I've always had times of intense doubt because the the biggest cognitive dissonance has been the behavior of the church whether it was when i was trying so hard to live as a woman and feeling this pain of i'm doing everything that you're telling me i have to do to be a quote unquote christian woman and yet i'm so miserable and yet you know you still flipping hate me clearly you know the way they treat women is so abysmally awful and trying to be a theology professor, I mean, I would have students to say, well, you can't teach me because you're a woman. And of course, knowing inside myself that it's like, well, me being a woman is a little bit, you know, that's a little bit of a wonky assessment anyways. But there's, even if it were true, it doesn't make, it was just a lot to hold. All right. It was a lot. To, I had a cognitive dissonance with the Christian faith all the time. And I would keep coming back to the way I feel when I pray, when I meditate, uh, when I read the original scriptures, and particularly to read the Hebrew scriptures in Hebrew, maybe because I don't know it that well. So it's kind of a mystical experience for me because I can't, you know, I can't intellectualize it because I don't know those languages that well, but I get just enough that, um, I don't know, let me get back to your question. My qu the, the question really is, since I've come out, I'm, I'm not, I don't have to be a teacher of doctrine anymore. And I don't have to, be, I'm not a minister anymore. So it's really freed me to experience faith in a much different and more open way that doesn't always have to be it. I don't feel like I need to have answers about it. I don't, I know I describe myself as post sectarian. Now I don't need to be part of any particular religion anymore. And sometimes I don't have a theistic faith. Sometimes, you know, I, I definitely could def describe myself as spiritual and not always religious. So let's talk about, you're leaving. And I have to tell you that as your Facebook friend and having watched your story and read your articles, it, it was painful to watch. It was painful to, to read some of the stories that you'd been through with ending up homeless. And, you know, I, I can only imagine as, you know, going from this middle class existence with you had your husband, you had your children, and then all hell breaks loose. It's all over the national news. And now you have a hard time finding a job. What did you feel like? What did you go through with your faith experience? What were you feeling in that moment? Besides, I would assume the unfairness. What was that experience like? Um, I think uh, that was that's part of the reason that I guess I might have thought that I would burn bridges with my faith. But honestly, the experience of um, getting the fake parts of my religious life stripped away not because I wanted them to be, because I did as, since you're my Facebook friend and, you know, we ran into each other at GNC and things like that, you know, I tried to make that I'm a professor of religion thing work for a while. I tried to make, well, I can at least write scholarly things on this work for a while. I tried a lot of different things to cling to. It wasn't just ripping off a bandaid, you know, and I didn't, I didn't give up my ordination right away either. That was 
a year or two before that happened. So my point is I, I went to a point where my values shifted from trying to maintain that middle class and that, that respectability and all that to, you know, I love my kids and I just want to keep a roof over our head and I hope we can all be in the same place. Our lives got more and more and more simple. I started working as a security guard. I started working freight at nights. I started. I worked as the church janitor at a church that I'd used to preach at and that where I'd been a theologian and things like that. So, so my understanding of myself and what it means to be of service really changed, and my understanding of what I need changed. And it wasn't all bitterness. I couldn't have lived in bitterness if I if I had lived in bitterness and resentment. And this is so unfair. Those times I would go back, I, I would have slidden back into middle mental illness and alcoholism, and I couldn't afford to do that. So for me to stay sober, for me to stay sane, I've got to learn to find ways to be grateful for where I am now, no matter what's going on. I mean, and that's the kind of faith, too. So it, again, it's that very experience that you're describing, even getting to the point where I was sleeping in my car for a little while or, or not, you know, staying with friends. Um, it deepened the friendships. It taught me that I can ask people for help. It's definitely humbled me in in much healthier ways. I think I'm a much better person, and um, I don't I don't know I don't define God the way I did when I was in a, definitely in an evangelical Christian setting. But if there's let's say some force in the universe, maybe it's just love in the way humans sometimes you know transcend our pettiness to do good things with each other and for each other. I believe in that more. Now, I don't have to force that. I don't have to find it in a book. I don't have to teach it to other people. I don't have to define it. Hmm. Um, I've been living it for a real long time. And I guess better way to say it is grace, because I don't know that you'd have to be theistic to believe in grace. But something like grace is a thing that I feel like I experience constantly now and believe in at a much deeper level than I did before I came out. Well, I, I, I just want to interject here. Uh, you and Tim know each other, and, and this is my first time to actually talk with you. Uh, but I'm, I'm blown away listening just to that explanation there. Uh, I, I'm just, I'm so grateful for the way you just explained it. it it's just very moving to me, and I just, we're going to have to become Facebook friends. <laughs> I do. I appreciate that. I do. Well, you know, I think, too, um, because of our, our audience, you know, is, is that I've ref I've have refused to take a hard atheistic stand because we there are things that we just don't know. Right. And, and I don't want to become a fundamentalist atheist either. So I though I have my views, it's not my place to put them on anybody else. And it, it is a journey. You know, when I when I first came out and had gone through conversion therapy and was dealing with the, the trauma of all of that, I spent, I did spend a time thinking, well, maybe God is this or God is that. But, you know, I, I mean, now I can tell you that what we understand of the Bible simply was not true in the evangelical faith. But beyond that, I mean, you know, we don't know. I, you know, I, I tried to learn as much science as I possibly can and, and live by what we know. But let's be honest. I mean, as human beings are, our cognition is such where we really perceive a lot of things around us and we don't have an explanation for it. And I realize that sometimes they call this the God gap, but um, you know, there, there are things that we don't know. And, and I, I don't have a problem with people who say, you know, I, I live a spiritual life or I choose to believe in whatever it, to me, the issue comes in is when we start to mistreat each other because we feel like we've heard from God and we have the answer and, and that's what we're going to put in everybody else. And I, and I think, you know, what you talked about, Donovan, in your experience with 
being in the college is that that's one of those occasions when that's what it was, is that we have the answer, we know what is true, and regardless of how you feel and the medical conditions that you have, none of that is really true because the Bible says whatever, right? And those are the, those are the things that are so damaging to people that, um, that destroy lives. So I, I agree with Bill. I appreciate what you had to say about that. And, and it really lets people come to their own conclusions and end up where they want to end up. So let me ask this, is that in this episode, we were talking about gender nonconformity and you work with that, right? You, you work with traumatic experiences. What would you advise people who are in that situation where they're questioning their gender identity and maybe they've come out of a church or an organization that has tried to put them in a more traditional role, how would you advise them and where can they go for help? I think that is really the most important question. And and I still believe now what I found to be true in my own journey and what I found uh, people to coming to me for for many years, I still find it the most effective thing. And that is simply peer support to find other people that have been through this before you, because it's even though that that was dropped earlier in this podcast, it's not new. It really is not new. Even being trans is not new. Certainly, like I said, being intersex, that's a, that's a biological diversity issue that exists in every species and has through all time. Being trans too, being, you know, like being gay. I mean, there, there have always been diverse gender identities. There's always been diverse sexual orientations. So, um, to find other people like yourself and thank God with the, oh, sorry, the route was the wrong phrase to use. Um, thank goodness <laughs> within this day and age, we can easily find uh, other people like ourselves using social media, using the internet. But one reason we founded Trans Lifeline, that was so important to me. And I was willing to s- not look for other work and do that church janitor work and that Home Depot work and that other stuff that I was doing so that I could focus on this was that there is this among others, Trans Lifeline is one, but there are many trans and uh, TGNC and intersex peer support resources that you can easily find on the internet. Um, There are even organizations like Trans Faith that have been around for quite a long time that include uh, an intersex division that include people all across the trans spectrum from people who are recovering from religion, people who still want to be connected to their religion. And it's all different religions and, and including people that are spiritual and not religious. So um, trans faith is definitely sort of a hub network for those kinds of resources that I would recommend. Yeah, we can definitely do that. Donovan, thank you so much for being on the show and talking to us. I've actually learned a lot from you just by listening and a lot of things I didn't know. So we appreciate your continued work. I yes. appreciate being a friend of yours and being able to be a part of your life and, and watch the changes and the growth and the challenges that you've given to me. So thank you so much for uh, joining us. It's my pleasure. I, I just want to thank that. I'm glad I got to meet you. I, I appreciate getting to meet you. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you, Bill. Good to talk to you both. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Recovering from Religion podcast. If you have questions for either of us or suggestions for future topics, you can email us at podcast at recoveringfromreligion.org. If you think you'd like to be one of our guests, we have a form on the podcast page of the Recovering from Religion website. We'd love to hear from you.